Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Himself, he cannot save. No truer words were ever spoken. You see, Jesus couldn't save himself and save us. He had the ability, the power, had he chosen to, to resist, to run. He didn't. He said, not my will, but yours be done. He went to the cross willingly and knowingly. Six months earlier at Caesarea Philippi, he said, I'm going up. I'll be handed over. I'll be crucified. Today we begin a message from Pastor Sam entitled Crucified. We are in Matthew chapter 27 beginning in verse 32 and over the next two broadcasts we'll be looking at the final 32 verses of this chapter. Jesus' crucifixion, death, and burial are detailed and considered in our next two studies. So let's listen in. Matthew's Gospel chapter 27 picking up today at verse 32. Now as they came out... They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled him to bear his cross. And when they'd come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he'd tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. It begins our our study today. Well, after the long evening Jesus spent with his disciples, he'd washed their feet, he'd ministered to them, he'd prophesied their, well, failure as they would all flee under the pressure of his arrest. He'd prophesied Judas' betrayal. He'd prophesied Peter's denials. Then they went to the garden and and there he prayed and you know he was arrested. Three illegal trials followed, religious trials. Then three civil trials. Finally, they lead him out to be crucified and under the weight of, well, all he had endured, the mocking, the brutal beating that he had taken, the scourging that many died from, our Lord falls under the weight of the cross and as was, well, Law in those days, the Roman soldier in charge compelled this visitor to Jerusalem, no doubt there, to celebrate the Passover with his boys. Simon was his name. He compelled him to take up Jesus' cross and follow after him. Of course, that has a familiar ring for many of us. Jesus tells us as his disciples, as his followers, as his representatives, that we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. And while it was the Romans who forced Simon to do so, he does become the first one, after our Lord, of course, to bear his cross in the best sense of the word. You see, Jesus bore his cross for others. A cross was a criminal's cross. It, it was, well, it was only given to the worst and, and for capital crimes. And Jesus, of course, was guilty not only not of any capital crime, but not of any crime, not of any sin. He bore his cross for us. This study will make that oh so clear. But Simon, he begins to bear Jesus' cross. Why? Because Jesus couldn't physically stay up under the weight of that cross. 
Well, they come to a place we read called Golgotha. That is the place of the skull. It's just outside the city gates. And if you get to Israel today, it's still there. You will readily recognize it, easily recognize it. You can see in the mountain itself, it's the image of a skull. And there on the top of that ridge, they crucified Jesus. And they crucified him between two that, well, our passage calls them robbers or thieves. Luke more appropriately calls them criminals. But they bring him to the place of a skull and they give him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. That word gall is an important one. It's the same word elsewhere translated myrrh. And um, if you recall, at his birth, one of the three gifts presented to him, myrrh. It was, well, used in many ways. It was a precious gift. It was used for anointing prophets, priests, and kings. It was also used, well, to numb pain. It had a medicinal effect, and, and I believe that's why it was offered to him here. And that's why, of course, it says they offer him the sour wine. That was just the common wine of the soldier the cheap wine of the soldier, mixed with the gall or mixed with the myrrh, it would have numbed him, deadened him to the pain he was enduring. But when he tasted it, he would not drink. Jesus had already made a decision not only to suffer and die, but to take the full effect, the full brunt of all our sin and all its consequence upon himself. There they crucified him, we read. They divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. We read it there in Psalm 22. I wanted to start our time together today there so that you can see so many of these things that take place. Well, our Lord, well, he prophesied them in advance. It speaks to the reality of our, our God's foreknowledge as to the future. Prophecy, biblically, it's just history in advance. It's always accurate. And so there's another side to the coin, though. Not just God's foreknowledge, but man's responsibility. And in the midst of that, well, you need to know these men weren't puppets. They weren't play actors. No, they were just doing what comes natural. And our Lord, knowing mankind, he didn't have to set up the scene or... Hire the actors? No, they, there was no scene to set. There were no actors needed. He just said, here's what they'll do. And of course, he knew. And they did. They were responsible. Many mocked. Others wept. But sitting down, we read as we continue on, they kept watch over him there and they put over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It's a most odd charge. You see, in that day, it was common for them to place the crimes for which that criminal was being crucified on the cross. Why? Well, it would certainly be a warning to others. This is what happens if you rape, if you murder, if you plunder. This is what happens when you mess with Rome. This is what happens when you break the law. And so in any case... Jesus hadn't raped, he hadn't plundered, he hadn't murdered. In fact, tempted in all ways, we're told, yet without sin. And over and over, we saw in our last study, and I highly recommend the tape, that those who examined him found him to be innocent. Not guilty. 
Pilate says, I find no fault in him. Nevertheless, he scourged and crucified him. And so the charge is placed on the cross. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The religious leaders, the chief priests came and said, don't put he the king of the Jews. Put he said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate, for once, stands up to them, does what's right, and says, what I've written, I've written. And by the way, Pilate, who at one point said, what is truth, now writes that which is true. Jesus, the king of the Jews. It's true, but of course, it's not the whole truth. He's king of kings and lord of lords. He is lord over all, king over all. Not just king of the Jews, but king of all kings. There's something else, though, Colossians tells us in the second chapter, that he took the handwriting of ordinances that was against us and he nailed it to his cross. While they would say, this is the charge to the Jew blasphemy, claiming to be the Son of God and God the Son, the King of the Jews, the Messiah. No, the real charges against Jesus were the handwriting of ordinances that were against us. Now, don't misunderstand. The Gentiles were never under the Mosaic law. And that handwriting of ordinances, no, it, it, they predate the Mosaic law. And here's why. Long before there was a law codified, written down and, and passed on, God had already written in the hearts of every man, every man, every woman, that there is right, there is wrong. No one has to tell someone it's wrong to lie because we all feel offended when someone lies to us. No one has to say it's wrong to steal because when someone takes your stuff, you're like, hey, I've been ripped off. Ripped off. I couldn't help but think the 70s when I looked in the hallway and saw all those guys doing the passion play for our kids, the Passover play. They look like a bunch of hippies, long hair, they got the robes, you know. But, but that's, what, that's what we used to say, and that's what you would have thought. Hey, I've been ripped off. And truly, who has to tell anyone married? Adultery is a sin? No, it doesn't, we don't need the law codified. God simply gave it because then it would be objective, it would be written down, it would be carved in. But the bottom line, the law is written on the hearts of men and women. And so, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. That's what they wrote. But Jesus took your sins, my sins. He nailed it to his cross and he took them out of the way. Two robbers were crucified with him. We go on to read one on the right, the other on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, saying, you who destroy the temple and build it up in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and elders said, he saved himself, he, him, he cannot himself, excuse me, he saved others himself, he cannot save. A couple of things. We're told that these two thieves joined in the mocking and then at one point, at some point during their time on the cross, one of the thieves had a change of heart. He turns to the other and he says, don't you fear God even now? We're here and rightly so. We deserve what we're getting. But he's done nothing wrong. Then he turns to the Lord and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He confesses that he deserved the cross he was on, that Jesus didn't deserve the cross he was on. And then he asked the Lord to remember him. 
Listen, Jesus has seven things he says from the cross. We'll examine them in a moment in their context. But, but his response to this thief, well, one of those powerful and wonderful statements from the cross. Well, as they were mocking and as the priest were mocking, as many were mocking, note what they were actually saying. You said you'll destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the son of God, you see, I, I'd, I'd recommend, I'd encourage you to go through chapter 7, 27, excuse me, go through it, take some time, highlight it or print it out, type it out, and then look at everything his enemies had to say about him. It is profound. It is powerful. They remembered he claimed to be the Son of God. They understood what many try to deny today, that that was claiming to be equal with God. He wasn't saying, hey, I'm a son of God as we are by adoption. No, he was the only begotten son of God. He was always the son of God. He was always God the son. And then it says, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and elders said he saved others. Himself he cannot save. Interesting. He saved others. They had attributed his miracles to the powers of darkness, saying he was working by the power of Satan. He saved others. Now they're acknowledging it. He saved others. How did he save others? Well, to the blind he gave sight, to the deaf hearing, to the lame he gave the ability to walk, to run, to leap. Demons were cast out. Lepers were cleansed. The dead were raised. And so they're saying he saved others. It was true. Himself he cannot save. No truer words were ever spoken. You see, Jesus couldn't save himself and save us. He had the ability, the power, had he chosen to, to resist, to run. He didn't. He said, not my will, but yours be done. He went to the cross willingly and knowingly. Six months earlier, at Caesarea Philippi, he said, I'm going up. I'll be handed over. I'll be crucified. I'll rise again the third day. Himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let God deliver him if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. I am the son of God. Let him come down and we'll believe him. You think that's true? Had Jesus come down from the cross, listen, if they rejected all he taught and all the miracles he worked, and they're not going to believe him even if he comes down from the cross. But there's something suggestive here. There were a lot of people looking for a Messiah, a Savior, but they don't want the cross. They don't want Jesus on it because it testifies of our sinfulness, our wickedness, our depravity. And they don't want Jesus on it because it, well, it testifies of the fact that if we're going to follow him, we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross in order to. Even the robbers we read were crucified with him. They reviled him saying the same thing. And from the sixth hour to the ninth, there was darkness over all the land. Here we have Jesus crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not his first cry from the cross, but his fourth. And I want to take you back to the first. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The first words from the lips of our Lord hanging on that cross after all he endured, Father, forgive him. 
If you have any doubt that God would forgive you your sin, if you thought maybe I've gone too far, maybe I've committed the unpardonable sin, maybe I'm just too much of a sinner, listen, to the very ones who handed him over and, and for the very ones that nailed him to the cross, to those who brutally beat him and mocked him and spat in his face and plucked out his beard and, and knowing that he was innocent, had him lied about and, and crucified, listen, he says, Father, forgive him. They know not what they do. And he wasn't just hoping the Father would forgive. He was making possible that forgiveness because he shed his blood for the remission of our sin. He died for our sins according to the Scripture, was buried and rose again according to the Scriptures. The second thing he cries from the cross is in response to that criminal's Please, remember me. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today. Listen, at some point, unless the Lord comes for us first, and there will be a generation, I believe us to be that generation, but first century Christians thought it would happen for them as well, so the Lord could delay his coming. And if he does, well, we know why he does. He does because it's not his will any perish, but all come to repentance. But my point is simply this. There will be a generation that doesn't taste death, that is raptured, that is caught up in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. I believe will be that generation. But if for some reason you pass first, you die first, know this, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And if it was true for that criminal that day, who trust in Jesus and never had opportunity to do one thing except trust in Jesus. Know this, when you stand before him in glory, when you breathe your last breath here and open your eyes there, the only thing that will get you there is that Jesus died for your sins. Lord, remember me. Forgive me. Lord, I'm guilty. You're innocent. Remember me. You see, that's, that's what worked for him. That's what will work for you. It's not what he did and what you do. It's what he did and that alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, forgive them. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He entrusts his mother into the care of John the Apostle. And John's care into, well, his mother. And then these three hours of darkness. And, and somewhere in the midst... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It pointed them, it points us to Psalm 22. Some have suggested Jesus was in such pain, such agony, and now having the sin of mankind placed on him, which he was experiencing, that, that he for the first time sort of, well, he, he was beyond himself. I don't believe that at all. I think Jesus was totally aware completely conscious of what he was doing and what he was saying. You see, those first three statements from the cross all involve others. Father, forgive them. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. Son, your mother. And now I believe he is pointing those there at the foot of the cross, those who could have and should have known better, back to Psalm 22. We read it. They pierced my hands and feet. They gambled for my clothing. They mocked me. Listen, they're on the cross. They could have put it together. They could have remembered Psalm 22. They knew this was the first line of it. They knew it was messianic. They should have seen, and perhaps some did. 
He's pointing us back. He's pointing us to the scriptures. Now there's a, a problem this poses though theologically and the question is this. Had the father actually forsaken him? I don't believe the father forsook Jesus for a couple of reasons. One of them we read in Psalm 22. I'll, I'll read it to you in a moment, share it with you. But get this. Jesus was operating, functioning in complete, total obedience and submission to the Father. I believe the Father, looking on that scene, hearing Jesus cry, would have, as he had earlier said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Why? Because you can never be closer to the Lord than when you were in complete submission to Him, absolute obedience to His revealed will. And that's what Jesus was doing right then. Yes, the sin of mankind, your sin, my sin, was placed on Him at that moment. And I do believe on a human level, He felt something that, well, if we weren't so numb to the consequences of sin spiritually, if we weren't so affected by the consequences of sin physically, I think we would be sensitive as Jesus was to what takes place. He felt for the first time what we should be feeling. Sin breaks fellowship. It builds a barrier. But the Father wasn't turning away from the Son. No, we read it. Listen, it's part of that Messianic Psalm. Nor has He hidden His face from Him, but when He cried to Him, He heard. There in Psalm 22. Listen, Jesus was so sensitive to the perfect fellowship he'd always had with the Father that your sin and mine being placed on him, he felt for the first time. He experienced for the first time that sin separates. Well, he knew it, but he'd never experienced it. But get this, the separation was, well, it's a paradox. I already said so. It's difficult to even conceive, impossible for us to conceive. How can Jesus be fully pleasing to the Father in absolute submission and obedience and at the same time since separation? Well, sin does that, you see. And I'm always concerned about the physical consequences of my sin. Other people being stumbled or, you know, the obvious things that happen as a result of my stupidity or sin. But the worst of what sin does is it, it separates, it breaks fellowship. Not just with us, but between us and, and our Father in heaven. The fifth thing Jesus has to say from the cross is, I thirst. I thirst. It, it brings us really back to our passage. As he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they'd heard said he's calling for Elijah. Malachi had prophesied Elijah would come first, and so, well, they were still thinking, maybe this is it. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered to him to drink. The rest said, let us alone, let's see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. We know that I thirst was his fifth cry from the cross, the sixth was, it is finished. Powerful words. They literally translate, paid in full. No truer words were ever spoken. It is finished, paid in full. That means the cross, his sacrifice, his shed blood, completely sufficient to cover and cleanse our every sin. And so, it's not what he did plus. It's just what he did. And we believe 
and we receive that forgiveness. It is finished, paid in full. The handwriting of ordinances that was against us, he took it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross, and he cries out, paid in full. As much as it may seem like those who opposed Jesus were victorious that day, that's simply not the case. Galatians 2.20 tells us that I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The people we used to be, crucified with Christ. Incredible. We don't bear the scars of the nails and the whips, but we do bear the scars of the sin that used to rule over us. But they are just a reminder now and they no longer control us. And Jesus, yes, he died on that cross, yet he lives. And he lives in us and we live in him. That is what victory looks like. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you, and until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.